Welcome to the 18th episode of the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm Slow Joe Crow Campbell. Slow Joe, that didn't work out. I'm, I'm Joe Campbell, and <laughs> with me today is my, indif- flap- my unflappable co-host, Nathan Stone. Joe, don't put in words that you don't know what they mean, please. I, it, it doesn't make you sound intelligent at all. That's that's my job. I, I never sound intelligent, so I'm setting no precedent. I'm only on my first beer, folks. I, I, I did not get the memo. I, I guess I didn't grab a beer. So I will be sober throughout most of this. So if uh, if anybody here listening to this may or may not know, I am very active on Letterboxd. No, really? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So, I mean, you, if, if you want to follow my movie watching habits, you can find me at letterboxd.com slash film underscore illiterate. Anyway... I, if you've been following me on Letterboxd, you may or may not know that over the past couple of years, I've been working through as many movies from the year 1934 as possible, just because I like to become familiar with different eras of movies. And an interesting way of doing that is just picking a year, I've found at least, and just going through as many movies as I possibly can. I try to pick at least one movie from each weekend of 1934. And at, at this point, I'm up to about 56 movies. So I'm, uh, I, I've, I've got a pretty well-rounded idea of what the year had to offer. It's been interesting. It's been fun. So today, I uh, forced Nate to watch a couple of them. And we're going to be talking about them. Uh, just a few movies that I thought were worth highlighting from that year. Some movies that I thought could give us a good idea of what 1934 had to offer cinema-wise. So we're going to be talking about Tarzan and His Mate. Manhattan melodrama, and of course, uh, the the famous It Happened One Night starring Clark Gable. Uh, Nate, were you familiar with 1934 in general or any of these movies before this time? I mean, with these movies, of course. I mean, It Happened One Night, you know, it's Frank Capra's, you know, big win at the Oscar. Uh, Manhattan melodrama, I actually remember watching that uh, early on in life. Tarzan and His Mate, I would have to say this is the first time I've seen this one, and boy, are we going to have a conversation about that. That is going to be a very interesting topic of conversation. I've got to say, out of all three of these movies, I think I'm most excited to talk about Tarzan and his mate. Uh, that's great, because that's the first one we'll be talking about. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. But before we get into any of that, as always, let's get into what we've been uh, watching on our own uh, recently. So I'll I'll go first today. Oh, how, how humble of you. How humble of me. I know, because I'm that's what they call me. They call me Humble Joe. So I'm, I'm going to first uh, start off by talking about something that I've read recently. I, I have recently found online copies of a few of Fred Decker's screenplays. Now, for those who may or may not know, Fred Decker is a longtime or old-time screenwriting filmmaking companion of Shane Black, who you may know from uh, Iron Man 3, uh, Predator, <laughs> recently. <laughs> Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yeah, so you're beginning to notice there's a trend with their style of writing and what genres they tend to like to lean towards. But but Fred Decker and and Shane Black are are friends, and Fred Decker didn't quite make as currently a big name for himself as Shane Black did. But he he is known in the cult film crowd, so he's most well-known for having directed Night of the Creeps, Monster Squad, and RoboCop 3. Uh, but he's teamed up with Shane Black to write a number of, of screenplays. So recently, I got a hold of two unproduced screenplays written by Fred Decker, which never got turned into movies, fortunately or unfortunately. And I also got the screenplay to Monster Squad, which he co-wrote with Shane Black. And I've got to say, if you can find any any screenplays written by Fred Decker, I highly recommend it because they are just a blast to read. He breaks all of the screenwriting rules and just makes them as entertaining to read for the person just reading them. I know. Apparently, he just is so self-aware that you're reading a screenplay. So he's going to bluntly make it obvious. Like, yes, audience, I know you're reading this. I know you have no clue what I'm talking about. So I'm going to point that out. And it's entertaining in itself. Well, here's something that that, that from the Monster Squad screenplay. Here's, here's a little excerpt. This is from a scene where the kids are watching uh, a, a horror movie at the drive-in movie theater. And it's just like a, a made-up slasher film. It's, a, it's kind of a parody of most slasher films. And here's his description. 
A big cat flies through the air screeching, because in these films, cats never just come out quietly purring. Oh no, they have to be fucking rockets and make elephant sounds, and yes, damn it, it does piss me off because it is cheap, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's from the screenplay for Monster Squad, and the whole screenplay is written like that, and it's amazing. I can just imagine just like the the producer's assistant just reading that on the script table and just like laughing and saying like, we gotta buy the script, we have to option it now, this is this is Yeah, even if you're not a fan of the movie Monster Squad, I would still recommend looking up the screenplay because because it's it's just you can tell the love for the Universal monsters and the kind of the Goonies esque camaraderie that these guys have. From what I found, the the screenplays that Fred Decker has written with Shane Black tend to be the best. So so Fred Decker in the in the eighties he wrote a screenplay for a Godzilla movie that never actually got made. So that one he wrote by himself, and and, and the the screenplay is fine. He he tries to make it more of a well, as he said in an interview once, he said that he wanted to make something that would be entertaining to watch, even if Godzilla never showed up. Oh, so kind of similar to what happened in the first Godzilla remake with Gareth Edwards, where Godzilla is gone for 80% of the film. Well, sort of, except for here's the thing. Godzilla actually kind of has an impact on that story of the, the Gareth Edwards movie. In the screenplay for the Fred Decker one, it's really like Godzilla is kind of inconsequential to everything. The movie is really a kind of a Cold War-esque espionage movie. Okay. It's got Russian secret agents and it's got assassins. So, so it's and... more focused on the humans as opposed to just what Godzilla is doing. Yeah. And it's, and it's and it's a it's a fun kind of kind of little espionage movie. The main the main character is this is this this kind of deadbeat dad who, by the way, the character of the dad who works for the military, who is estranged from his wife and has a kid. That archetype pops up in like every Fred Decker screenplay, <laughs> apparently. And like the dad's either like a deadbeat dad or uh, an obsessed tech geek dad who believes in this conspiracy theory, whatever's going on. So that's the character in this Godzilla movie, and he's up against, you know, secret Russian agents. But then, you know, Godzilla pops in every once in a while. And the Godzilla action is great. It's a lot of fun to read in, in, the, in the screenplay. But, I mean, the, the script as, as a whole, it's not the sort of thing where I'm wishing, like, oh, man, I really wish that this had been turned into a movie. Because I'm like, yeah, it would have been fun, but it kind of comes off as a mixture between the camp of the uh, Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie and then the contrast between the human elements and military elements and the monster elements that was from the Gareth Edwards movie. Fred Decker is known for his movies are very pulpy. He loves kind of the cult movies that he grew up with and everything he makes feels like that. Even The Predator yeah. was co-written by Fred Decker feels like that for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's obviously you get a sense of like where this guy's coming from, what he really like leans towards. And I guess that is something like any writer in a way kind of brings to the table when they write any kind of screenplay. Which, you know, most screenplays I've read are very stale and they're very sparse. And you think, so this was nominated for an Oscar. Whereas like, you know, with Fred Decker, he knows this may not be the best idea, but he's gonna make it a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what all of his movies feel like, is that he's just trying to have fun. He he gets a blast out of these kind of genres and playing with these kind of toys when he was a kid, and he wants to share that joy with you. Which brings me to the last screenplay I'm gonna talk about. Uh, this was another one that was co-written by him and Shane Black, which is an unproduced movie called Shadow Company. They wrote it to be directed by John Carpenter. And for some reason or other, I'm not sure why, it, it just fell through. Like, like, like they got into really writing this and planning on making it. It just never happened. And this movie, if this had been made, this would have been one of the greatest cult movies of all time. I loved the screenplay so much, and I want it to be made today. <laughs> Honestly, could you just give us like a little taste of what this is about? Because I'm curious. Yeah, so this, this movie is about in Vietnam, the military was working on a secret operation where they were doing experimentation to make basically super soldiers and I think in like the days preceding the end of Vietnam, they find out that, oh, there's a secret base. And if they can send people in there right now, then they could win the war after the war was already over, basically. So they send in these six super soldiers in there. And the idea is that these super soldiers have, have this, this serum, I guess, in them or something, where once they die, once they're sprayed with a special kind of gas, they would come back as zombie soldiers and just massacre everyone. And there's no way to kill them. Like I'm talking about like evil dead levels of just complete bodily dismemberment. But in, in, in Vietnam, they die in the, in the raid. But uh, the government pulls the plug on the operation. So they never get sprayed with the gas to bring them back to life. Flash forward, I think it's like 15 years later. And their bodies are returned to U.S. soil. 
uh, in some like small town out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and this crazy army general who wants to you know, bring back the glory of the military, we'll show them. He brings them back to life. So basically the whole movie is just these six zombie soldiers just wrecking havoc in this small American town. And it is glorious. You know what? I'm kind of wondering if this was a script that somehow came across the desk of one of the guys who's involved in small soldiers. Cause this kind of sounds a little bit like that. Maybe they just tweaked it a bit. So like, okay, instead of a serum, it's a microchip. And instead of actual zombie soldiers, they're action figures. Well, I, I I do know that that elements of the screenplay kind of leaked out into other stuff. For instance, the the idea of a Vietnam soldiers coming back to haunt someone as zombies. Uh, Fred Decker actually reused that idea himself in I think it was a 1980s movie called House, mm-hmm. which was uh, a haunted house kind of horror comedy. But one of the elements of that movie involves a Vietnam veteran who regrets uh, leaving one of his buddies to die in the war. And that guy comes back as a zombie to kill him uh, in his house in present day. So like 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 some of those elements are hanging around out there, I'm sure, in other projects. But the movie as it is, I mean, the main character is, again, you know, an ex-military commando type guy who he's the only one who knows what's going on. He's the only one that can stop them. And he's an estranged from his wife and an estranged father and everything. And uh, as all Fred Decker screenplays goes, you know, it also has a kid in it. Mm-hmm. As a Shane Black movie goes, it is the most Christmas Shane Black movie of all time. Oh it's gosh. set like a day or two before Christmas. Uh, there's so many one-liner, like like characters like singing White Christmas and everything in the, in the screenplay. There's this little girl who's dressed up for a Christmas pageant the whole movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this, this movie, this script was so much fun to read. And I would have loved to have seen this on screen. And I'm just dying for someone today to bring it back. I mean, honestly, with the fact that Fred Decker and Shane Black are still pretty popular, and despite how polarizing they are in Hollywood, maybe they might get a deal. Who knows? Netflix? And I know that Fred Decker hasn't been attached to a lot of great things. I, I personally like The Predator, but I know a lot of people who really hated it. Um, I know that RoboCop 3 wasn't that great. But again, there's like a whole other stories behind the making of that and how much control he had. But regardless of that, I will be there day one to see anything that he writes or directs because he he isn't putting out a whole lot these days anymore. I think that's a shame because he whether the movie's good or bad is always a lot of fun at the very yeah. least. So so Hollywood, please do Joe a favor. Get Fred Decker to do this movie, please. Bring back Fred Decker, please. Bring back the Shadow Company screenplay. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you want to read the Shadow Company, Company screenplay, it's fairly easy to find online. So I, I just look it up. I'm sure you can find it on the, out there somewhere. Uh, just a couple quick quick things, because uh, I know I've been going on for quite a while. I watched The Girl in the Spider's Web, which came out last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mainly watched it because I like the director, Fede Alvarez. He did the Evil Dead remake, mm-hmm. and he did Don't Breathe from a couple years ago. Yeah, and this is supposed to be a continuation of the uh, Americanized version of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, right? It is, yes. It's the second movie in the series, but it's also kind of a reboot because they recast everybody. Yeah, But like- it still feels like it's in the same kind of continuum. Yeah, even the opening credits kind of have that same look, the opening credits from the first movie. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, th- this, this movie got a lot of shit when it came out. Like, a lot of people really hated on it, mm-hmm. and then it got forgotten. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, it's, it's, it's a fine little thriller. I, I thought, thought the uh, Claire Foy did a great job in the in the lead role. Uh, Do you think she did better than uh, Rooney Mo? I, I don't think so, but to tell you the truth, it's been a while since I saw the girl with the dragon tattoo, and I uh, it didn't leave that big of an impression on me. I mean, I, I don't think I disliked it, but I just don't remember much about it at all, because I saw it and I kind of forgot about it. But mm-hmm. I remember Rooney Mara doing a good job in that one. Uh, I thought Claire Foy was great, too, so it's it's tough for me to compare. I would have to rewatch it uh, to tell you. But I thought the movie was fine. I mean, it's simple. I'm not saying it's great or anything, but it's well done. It was it held my attention and it was, it was fun. So I, I would mildly recommend it. And then finally, uh, I watched rewatched The Secret of Nim, which I haven't seen since I was a kid. That's a Don Bluth classic right there. Yeah, Don, Don Bluth, uh, 1982. It's an animated movie uh, synopsis to save her ill son. A field mouse must seek the aid of a colony of rats with whom she has a deeper link than she ever suspected. So I, I, I watched this movie mainly to to show it to my four-year-old daughter for the first time, because I'm showing her like all the movies that I grew up with. And it's it's I think this movie works great. It's kind of an entry into epic, kind of mythical storytelling, you know, but it's, it's, it's with animals living their lives in the fields and everything. 
but they're anthropomorphized to a degree where it becomes an, an adventure movie, even though they're in this world of humans. And there's you know scientific experimentation, and there's magic, and there's beautiful animation. There's really scary moments, and there's really touching moments. I think this movie just works on every level. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. And what's really cool about this movie when it first came out is like this was in real competition with Disney at the time because Don Bluth he had originally worked at Disney and he went and ventured off and wanted to produce his own you know line of films. And this was like the first feature length one that they had produced. And at the time, it, 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 I, I can't remember what the reception of this movie was when it first was released. But I know like this was like the first time people had seen something like this, like everything else before it was just like they would compare it to Disney. And to see something this dark, this dramatic, but this beautiful as well was kind of refreshing. Yeah, and that's the thing about the movie is that it's it's dark and it's genuinely frightening, which I which I, I appreciate. I think we need to bring some of that back into movies. I think I think family kids movies these days are too afraid to have a little real danger in them. I, I you raise kids in this stuff, they're fine with it. They they, they enjoy it. They appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And my and my daughter loved it. You know, she 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 was, she was on board the whole time and asking questions about the plot and really engaged with everything that was going on. It's just, I don't know, it's just such a well-done movie. So the next film you let her watch is The Black Cauldron, right? <laughs> you know what? I've, I've never seen that movie myself, actually. Oh, I didn't grow up watching The Black Cauldron. Oh, my gosh. I know, what I, know of it. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I'm going to show her, show her uh, Watership Down. <laughs> oh, jeez. Why don't you go do the play dogs while you're at it? <laughs> No, I um uh no no no. Watership Down and Plague Dogs will be way down 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 the road. Secret of Nemesis is, is good good for now. <laughs> okay, that, that's good. At least you have uh, boundaries. You have boundaries. <laughs> anyway, Nate, tell me what we, we, we've been into recently. Okay, let's see. I have been going down memory lane for a lot of the films I've watched this week. First one I'll talk about was a one that um I remember watching as a kid, and actually being very fond of when I first saw it. Uh, it's called Somewhere in Time. Basically, synopsis is when a playwright with writer's block, played by Christopher Reeve, uh, travels to the Grand Hotel. He becomes enthralled and enchanted by the portrait of a woman who was from 1912, played by Jane Seymour. And in attempts to meet with her, he goes back in time by hypnotizing himself to 1912 at the Grand Hotel to make this all happen. So it's a bit of a time travel movie. It's a romantic movie. Uh, Kind of funny thing, looking back on this, I can see where James Cameron got a lot of his inspiration for Titanic because you watch this movie, there are shot compositions and stories and MacGuffins that happen that you totally can tell Titanic ripped this movie, like every part of the screenplay. But I watched it just because, you know, it was a movie I remember watching growing up and it's, it's okay. It's one of those movies where it's very dated and it feels dated, like it came out in 1980. And this was a movie like right after Christopher Reeve did Superman. He wanted to do something else and really get noticed for his acting abilities. And he's okay. I think he's okay. Uh, it's kind of hard because it's so hard to picture him anything else but Clark Kent Superman because the guy's a humongous giant. I think the one person who continues to shine in this movie is Jane Seymour. She plays the actress and love interest of Christopher Reeve, and she's a charm to watch. If anything, the one thing that I continue to like about this movie is the score. And this was written by famous composer John Barry, who did all the James Bond movies. And he had written it right at the time both of his parents passed away. So he admits like he could have gone back and done another James Bond movie. But he decided to do this little passion project, which was not for much of a budget. But it's like some of the most beautiful music that exists out there. So I think that's one of the things I liked about it and why I wanted to revisit it. But it's it's an okay romantic movie. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the story, but you can see why people find this as like a very enduring classic. So I've never seen or even heard of this movie, but just kind of looking it up while while you were talking about it, uh, I noticed a couple of interesting things. One is from the director of, of Jaws Two. Jaws Two, yes. Well, I was going to say, and Richard Matheson, one of the direct, one of the screenwriters, is the guy who did I'm Legend. Well, he's also the guy who uh, co-wrote the screenplay for Jaws 3D. <laughs> Yes. The funny story about that um, actually is uh, uh, this movie was actually kind of a payback project because the director had did Jaws 2 and it was a box of success. And he was like, so Universal, you're going to make me do this movie, right? And so they said, fine, here's a budget. And they didn't give him much of a budget. It was like, I forget how much they gave him, like $12 million. How do you suppose to shoot a period piece for $12 million? So everything is shot on location at the Grand Hotel, which I think is one of the things I think just makes the movie just 
so beautiful to look at just because everything's shot on location with natural light. And then a lot of the costumes, they try their best to be uh, accurate towards the Edwardian period. And I don't know, I think it's it's kind of an achievement for its time, but it's a very, very tragic and sad movie at the same time as well. Like the ending, I won't spoil it, but it can wreck a person. Well, I, 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 I'm mildly curious now. I'll have to add that to my watch list and uh, check it out one, yeah. of these, one of these times. Like, I, it, like, like, like the way you're describing it, the first thing that, that, that jumped to mind was Forever Young for some reason with uh, Mel Gibson. It does have a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It has a little bit of that, you know, that charm and that whimsical kind of um, setting to it. Yeah, or, or or something like, I mean, I was going to say The Love Letter, but the, the better known version of that movie is, uh, oh, what's that Keanu Re- The Lake House. Yeah, I'd say The Lake House is kind of similar to that and being like, you know, a romantic time travel, like, you know, it falls a little bit more in that. It doesn't play too much with the whole time travel aspect. Like once... It establishes, okay, that's how he goes back in time. It rarely comes back. Okay. Um, there's not a whole lot of like, oh, what if this created a parent time paradox? Like, it doesn't even phase you. But it's a, it's a nice little movie. Um, I revisited The Blair Witch Project, complete 180 from this. Um, and the reason I watched this again is, uh, I don't know, I was kind of like, I like found footage movies. And I remember this one was the one that kind of started the whole found footage horror thriller genre. And I guess if anyone's familiar with this movie, it's, you know, a bunch of kids go out into the Maryland woods and they want to make this documentary about the Blair Witch that exists there. And then because of a bunch of stupid decisions, they lose the map, they go off the trail and they get spooked out by a bunch of stuff that happens. They begin to perceive that this Blair Witch is existing and it's trying to hunt them and lure them to kill them. Uh, The reason why I wanted to watch this movie again is because this is the movie that kind of put everything into motion. Like, Joe, I don't know how many found footage movies you're a big fan of, but I know like it's become the whole genre in itself, like Paranormal Activity. Uh, Quarantine is also another example of a found footage movie, which is based off of the Spanish version record. But I just remember this is the movie that kind of set and put everything into motion. And while the acting and the story is not the best thing. I think that's what makes it great to its advantage because it brings this level of realism to it. And that's another thing that was kind of crazy about this movie is that the guys who made it try to pitch it as this actually happened. These kids are lost. Can you come help find us, these missing kids? If you don't recognize them, please come see the movie because maybe you might recognize them. And I just remember that was a whole part of their marketing campaign, and it freaked lots of audiences out because I thought this was real. So interesting thing about me and found footage is that I actually have quite a history with watching found footage movies, uh, mainly because an, mm-hmm. an old roommate of mine, we used to watch tons of terrible found footage movies together just just for shits and giggles. And I, I mean, like, I'm not talking about like the good found footage movies. We watched a lot of the good ones. Like we watched Quarantine. Uh, VHS. Uh, we watched all the VHS <laughs> movies. Um, but we watched a lot of stuff like, uh, Devil's Pass, uh, which I'm sure not many people have heard of, uh, Area 407, which was one with dinosaurs. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, yeah, you know, lots of unaware, tons of terrible, no budget stuff that nobody's heard of. And so of course I've, I've watched Blair Witch Project. I, you know, was too young to watch it when it, when it came out, um, I've, I've got to say, I really hate this movie. <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's it's really stupid when you think about it as far as the story goes because the kids are making stupid decisions, the writing's not that great, the camera work's not great, and like the antics in it are just very cheap. Like It's just a bunch of kids with their superstitions getting the best of them and them screaming and freaking out in the woods, cussing and you know crying and putting their the camera close to their dripping nose as they whisper. Well, and that's, that's my big thing about the movie is that I mean, I mean, I don't mind that it was made for no money. I don't mind that 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 is it's, it's shot terribly, which is kind of supposed to be because you know, you know, you know, that's that's kind of the aesthetic they're going for. Mm-hmm. And I don't care that they didn't have a script going in and they were just kind of making it up as they were going along. You could have all of that and still make a watchable movie. My problem is that the movie is just boring because mm-hmm. nothing happens throughout the whole movie. It's just kids yelling at each other through the woods mm-hmm. for the entire movie, mm-hmm. and then at the end nothing freaking happens and i i think in order for the movie to work you really have to be watching it in the mindset of when it originally came out you have yeah. to be on board with the viral marketing because this movie was groundbreaking in the yeah. way that they marketed it try to play it off as real you have to be 
you have to buy into everything that's going on. Yeah, and like I said, it, it's definitely one of those films that it came out at the right time. And obviously, you're right, Joe. There is nothing that happens in it. But it's those little things that really just you place to the audience's imagination thinking, okay, if you went in thinking this was an actual real found footage movie, like someone had made this after they had discovered these cameras and decided to bring it to the theaters to say, hey, do any of these kids look familiar to you? I, as an audience member, if I saw this at the time, I would be terrified. And the fact that you don't see anything, it's just a bunch of noises, is kind of in itself a little terrifying. Even though nothing really does happen at the end, I think it's still placed to the audience's naivety at the time, thinking that this was real. And I think that's what made it most terrifying. But you're right, looking back on it, it's very dated, it's stupid, but I think it's ingenious for what little it had for itself going for and what they were able to do with it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the movie, the movie was certainly groundbreaking. And uh, and to be fair, I, I as a quote-unquote connoisseur of found footage movies, I've seen much, much, much worse oh. uh, than The Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a formula that yeah. you, you kind of realize you, you can't repeat it so often because it starts losing it's flare. It starts losing what makes it scary and you have to do yeah. something different with it. So either way, uh, moving on, um, watched a Jay and silent Bob strike back. That's all I have to say. Yeah. I haven't, I um, haven't seen it. <laughs> I mean, if anyone's familiar with Kevin Smith, he has two characters that reoccur in all of his films called Jay and silent Bob, silent Bob being played by him and Jason Muse playing Jay who just curses constantly in his Jersey accent. And yeah, that's what the movie is. I think the only thing I found really entertaining about this are all the cameos. Like Wes Craven makes a cameo in this. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon get meta with their cameos, appearing as like, you know, these characters that are friends with Jane Simon Bob, and then they appear as themselves doing a remake to Goodwill Hunting at the time because it was, you know, just came out. I mean, there's just a lot of appearances in this that when you look at it and you think about it, it's like this is this is kind of funny in itself that they're just putting this much effort into it. And so I guess that was just all that I wanted to see it for was just Kevin Smith just having a budget and able to bring all these characters and actors in. Other than that, it's stupid. Uh, last movie I saw, and then we can move on, uh, I saw was A Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So if anyone's not familiar with Hunter S. Thompson, he is known as a gonzo writer who basically dabbled into the world of narcotics and drugs and Hell's Angels and wrote it from the perspective of someone who experienced all of it, mostly because he did do a lot of these drugs at the time um, and would write firsthand like what it felt like and what it had that mindset of someone experiencing it in real time as it's being written. And his writing style is very fascinating. I'm actually kind of dabbling in a couple of his books and works just to recognize his voice and style and i think this movie when it first came out in 1998 directed by terry gilliam starring johnny depp and benicio del toro as uh, dr gonzo and duke loyal they go on a trip to las vegas to film a dirt bike motocross race and delve into the nightmarish world of narcotics and drugs and casinos and diners and gary Busey highway patrol cops and it's it's a trip of a movie. If anyone's not seen this movie, it's one I highly recommend. Joe, have you seen this movie? I have. It's been a while, though. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, this is another one that just really didn't make that much of an impression on me when I when I saw it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I remember it being very Terry Gilliam-esque. Yeah. And Terry Gilliam, for me, works sometimes more than others. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I love... Brazil. I love his work in the Monty Python world. I'm not as big of a fan of like Time Bandits, and this was another one that just kind of I was like, eh, not for me. Yeah, honestly, it's like his work is either hit or miss for a lot of people. Um, I think when he just has big names to it, like Benicio del Toro, Johnny Depp, and you know, Tobey Maguire makes an appearance in this. He plays like the young, long-haired hippie dude in the beginning, which I keep oh, I forgetting about that. I keep forgetting that hair is actually CGI'd. Wait, really? A part of it is CGI because if you look at it, his hairline it is like so fair and faint that they had to kind of just mask out a lot of just like his, you know, darker hair that was shining through. So they did use CGI on that and you can't even tell. What a strange thing to use CG on. (laughs) I mean, I feel like it's the most appropriate thing to use CG on. It's like, that's really what CG is supposed to be meant for Michael Bay. 
um, is, <laughs> is to kind of just mask out like those little details that you don't want to recognize, not just pretend something imaginary is there. But uh, no, this movie is interesting. I guess the reason why I wanted to watch it again is because I watched this when I was 12 years old. My brother and I used to watch movies without our parents knowing, and this was one that left a huge impression on us because <laughs> there's a lot of nightmarish and demonic like imagery in this. And you kind of go in just not knowing that, it's it can really rape your childish mind. Oh, you know? I, I could I could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 definitely like I said, it's a trip to watch. So definitely go in knowing that if you guys have not seen it or are thinking about seeing it. But I'd say even just look into Hunter S. Thompson's work. It's kind of a it's fascinating just to read itself. And with that, we'll move into our main discussion. 1934. What a year in movies. So I was looking at my movie-watching habits, and I was realizing that the most recent years, I watched a lot more movies from, say, the current year than from any previous year in movie history. So, for instance, you know, in 1980s, any given year, I may have watched about five, six, seven movies from a certain year. 1930s, maybe I've seen a couple movies from any given year. But then, you know, say 2015, I'd seen over 50 movies. 2016, over 50 movies. And I just... I, I, I I'm a big believer in having a well-rounded film education and really consuming everything. It's why I watch a lot of terrible movies with a lot of great movies. I watch art house films and I watch B movies. I, I just, I consume everything. Cause I like having a well-rounded idea of what's out there. Yeah. Because then you never know that, you know, one day you might be the next Tarantino or Scorsese and you can just be that kind of a cinephile who brings that much to his work. Well, on, on top of that also, I think, I think really recognizing what makes a movie great and what, makes a movie terrible and and finding the great things in bad movies and picking out the the, the bad things in, in great movies. And I think being able to see movies from all sorts of angles gives you a whole different perspective on them. It's why I think I, I rank a lot of cult movies a lot higher than some of the classics, you know, Citizen Kane isn't a movie I really feel strongly about. I'm not a huge fan of Citizen Kane. Evil Dead 2, on the other hand, one of my favorite movies of all time. So I was looking through this and I realized that I, I'm well-rounded in genres I'm not well-rounded in eras. I just picked random year from there, 1934, and I decided, you know what? I'm just going to watch as many movies as these as I can, and I'm going to try to watch, at the minimum, 50 movies, because I knew that, in general, I watched about 50-plus movies from any current year. The idea was to initially, you know, watch as many movies from a previous year as my current year, and that just kind of spiraled out to just really delving into what's available, the obscure stuff as well as the popular stuff. Now, it's interesting you picked 1934 because there's a lot of interesting things that kind of was happening during that year. I see like you've written here, like a lot of things that were happening were just screwball comedies and a lot of musicals. Um, I know Shirley Temple was like making a huge splash with a lot of her films. Yeah, actually, Shirley Temple, interestingly enough, I just want to say quickly on her, there, there was some movie, and I, I'm looking through my list and I don't remember which one it was. But there was some movie where she was in and she ended up getting cut from the movie, which is just kind of interesting because that was really the year that she started coming into things. I don't think she was in very much where it was famous for having her in it. Yeah, I mean, Baby Take a Bow is also a movie that she was in. And that's kind of what... That's right. That was that, that was a big one for her. But also like going into this history, because I did some research into looking into 1934. Like this was like the time in the, in the Great Depression where you saw unemployment at its lowest before it was really high and in this year was like the first time when you kind of saw improvement in the situation like not everybody was out of unemployment but you saw people gaining they were able to save some funds able to afford going to things like dinner dance parties and movies so it, it's kind of reflected in a lot of the films at the time as well yeah well it, and um it's really interesting looking at the different genres that were really big that year. One of the first things that does stand out is a lot of epics, or not not so much epics, but just... Uh, adventure movies, like they were like action adventure movies. Well, yeah, we had a lot of adventure movies. I was looking forward to this year because specifically it's the year after King Kong came out. And I was mm -hmm. looking forward to, oh man, I can't wait to see all the adventure movies that piggybacked off King Kong. And I 
I guess I still have to wait because all the adventure movies in 1934 were mostly showcasing uh, circus animal wranglers just doing their thing, but in a threadbare plot <laughs> set in the jungles. <laughs> and they're pretty boring. But there's also a lot of movies just kind of set in um, big fancy houses and lots of period costumes and talking about wealthy families living in the yesteryear, you know, in the 1800s. Uh, something like The Barrett's Wimple Street is mm-hmm. one that feels a lot like it. Uh, Viva Villa is another period film. I mean, it's it's, it's different in, in that it's kind of more of a revolutionary war movie, but that kind of has that same kind of tone to it. Manhattan melodrama, even even to some degrees, showcases some of that. Imitation of um, life as well. Great um, expectations. Great expectations. You know, you know, you know or the, the affairs of Cellini. So a lot of these movies did kind of tackle that. Another thing that I found interesting was that a lot of these movies tended to t- to be about marital drama and couples of either thinking about cheating on each other or maybe cheating on each other or broken up couples or couples that are having problems you know even like i think the gay divorce was like a big film that came out that year correct that was all about that um and that was pretty funny i've got to say actually <laughs> or uh what was it there was one with uh, myrna loy and william powell not the thin man and not manhattan melodrama although manhattan melodrama which we'll talk about does get into some of that too is it evelyn pretense that you're talking about yep 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 El- evelyn prentice that one's all about that also uh about a wife thinking about cheating on her husband and vice versa and what's the problems in their relationships so I, th- I thought that's interesting that that was a reoccurring theme in a lot of these movies uh especially for that year also, with 1934 being the year that the Hayes Code was enacted, mm, yes, where before the Hayes Code was enacted, movies could show a lot more than I think a lot of people realize. Like, pe- if you're not familiar with old black and white movies, you might just think, oh, if it's black and white, you're not going to be able to show anything. No, and if you've actually watched King Kong, there's a lot of blood in there, there's a lot of grisly violence, and a lot of movies back then dealt with violence, nudity, uh, even some some cussing. And then the Hayes Code comes along in the 30s, and they start cracking down on all uh, on, on censorship and saying, all right, you can and can't cover some of these issues, can and can't show these specific things. So I was watching 1934 in chronological order by release date. So I started in movies released in early January, and I'm working towards movies released in late December. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that around the time that the Hayes Code is enacted, there is a very clear distinction between movies that show a lot more. For instance, uh, the exploitation movie, The Road to Ruin, mm-hmm. which is all about uh, you know drug use and uh, promiscuity and all these things that you don't think you'd be able to show in these early movies is there. And then you come to the later movies and you realize that, that movies were having to be trimmed down a lot more and they... Uh, I, I don't have a list of specifics, but there were a couple of movies I know at the time that had to be cut significantly. Actually, we'll be talking about this later, but It Happened One Night is kind of like shows a, a clear distinction of when you could definitely see the Hayes Code in action. Yeah, exactly. And Tarzan and his mate is it's a very clear example of something that shows stuff that you, you could get away with before the Hayes Code that you couldn't afterwards. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I guess is going to be the first film we're going to talk about, correct? That is right. So Tarzan and His Mate is the second Tarzan movie to come out, actually. It's a sequel to Tarzan of the Apes. Englishman Harry Holt joins a friend for an African safari on which they hope to find Ivory, as well as locate his former girlfriend, Jane Parker, played by Marina Sullivan, who lives with her husband, Tarzan, a white man raised by animals in the jungle. When they find the couple, Jane refuses Holt's overtures. When they discover and steal some ivory from an ancient elephant burial ground, they unleash havoc from all the jungle's inhabitants, and Tarzan must come to the rescue to save the jungle and his beloved Jane. So, Nate, uh, have, have you seen any of the other older Tar- Tarzan movies of the time? I did see Tarzan of the Apes um, way, way back. Um, I remember that movie leaving a distinct impression on me just because, you know, that's the first time we got the the call of the jungle with Tarzan swinging from the vines, you know, the interaction with Jane and Tarzan and him learning English from her. Also just a lot of just, you know, the action sequences where he's trying to fight cheetahs and lions and riding on elephants and working with gorillas. Like this was like, you know, really was hearkening back to the, the Burroughs books. So it was kind of like the first time this was ever really, actually, no, it's not the first time it was projected on screen. There was a silent movie version of it, but this is the one that was able to, bank on sound really defining the character and i just remember hearing tarzan's call 
as a kid and that just leaving a very distinct impression on me like the movie i can't remember too much like if it was good or boring or very action driven i just remember that and that being like very iconic in itself so i don't think very many people realize just how much of of tarzan as a figure they associate with these movies or at least a lot of things that they think of of tarzan comes from these movies i haven't actually seen the first tarzan of the apes movie so I jumped into Tarzan and his mate as the first of these Johnny Westmuller Tarzan movies uh, that I've seen, even though it's the second movie. But, you know, the, the Tarzan yells in there, the way he's dressed, the way he swings through the trees comes from these movies. So like our our current cultural image of Tarzan, I think, comes from these films. I'd read the first Tarzan book. I'm actually a really big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs. I've read a lot of the, the John Carter of Mars books. And I've read the first book and a half of the Tarzan books, and, and he's 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 pulp novel writing at its finest. He loves the, these violent details and these. Well, I mean, he's writing it for like uh, you know prepubescent boys who are just yeah, like you know, exactly they, they want to see a guy fighting cheetahs and saving Jane, and they want to see a guy rip a lion's face in half. Like stuff exactly like that happens in the books all the time. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, I mean, me having watched some of the later, uh, more current Tarzan movies, like 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 the Disney movie, I saw that uh, Legend of Tarzan, I think, that came out a few years back. Oh god, that's uh, a piece of shit. Samuel L. Jackson, yeah, and, and so it's like I, I I've seen those ones, and I thought, well, you know, no movie's ever going to live up to the pulp of the original novels. I was wrong. This movie. <laughs> is wonderful, wonderfully pulpy. (laughs) (laughs) More than just pulpy, it's so risque as well. Like I was looking at the scenes that you kind of like had mentioned to me, like, and I was like, Oh wow, this got really steamy. There's full on nudity in this movie. Uh, when when Jason's swimming around, there like 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 Tarzan just like scoops her up, and he's just like, "All right, time to go have sex." Basically, <laughs> this movie's insane. And I, 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 the, the moment that I realized I, I was going to love this movie though was when uh, a group of adventurers, you know, you know, going out to the woods, they're looking for for Jane, and they're also looking to get some uh, some ivory, mm-hmm. which is a whole other thing. I'm sure we'll get into. But they're climbing this this kind of rocky mountain and all of a sudden gorillas just come out of nowhere and just start fleeing fucking rocks at them just from the top of this cliff and they're just chucking boulder after boulder and people are bouncing off rock faces and you know bloody havoc everywhere it's crazy (laughs) oh yeah so it's you definitely can see like this was a movie that is like pre uh haze code law like it's this has got a good example of like showing what Hollywood is able to get away with half the time in a lot of their pictures. From what I understand, shortly after the movie came out, they they, they were forced to cut down quite a bit of it. Uh, but thankfully for us, I think the only version that exists today, at least in any public uh, common forum, is is the original uncensored version of the movie. This shows on screen the kinds of things that I picture when I'm reading an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel. It's Pulpy, it's fun, it's crazy, it's violent, it's everything I want an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel to be on screen. Uh, it's kind of meandering, uh, not as focused. You know, when Tarzan comes into the plot, he and Jane just kind of go off and have their own little adventure thing off to the side where not a whole lot happens, not connected to the main plot really at all. Yeah, well, it's because I think like the first movie with Tarzan and the Apes, you know, the big story or the driving storyline is like Jane encounters Tarzan, Tarzan falls in love with her and he wants to win her over. That's really the story if you think about it. Whereas like, yeah, this one, it does meander because they're trying to like, Jane's already with Tarzan. She's not going to leave Tarzan. So it's like, okay, well, how can we get them away from each other? And so that's where I think the whole meandering plot line comes in. And even just this whole like supernatural aspect with like the ancient elephant burial ground is it's kind of very far-fetched and i was like watching some of like tarzan with an army of elephants is far-fetched just like the whole like havoc that it kind of brings upon like the jungle is like oh really okay um but i I feel like the action in this is a little bit better than what i remember from the first one but it's still like you could definitely tell this has like all the elements as you mentioned of what people love about tarzan no yeah i i i'm i'm looking forward to to, to watching the rest of the, the west miller tarzan movies uh i haven't watched any of the other ones yet so i don't know if they live up to this one but i i really i have a blast with this movie highly recommend tarzan and its mate uh don't expect it to be terribly pc though this is uh, the 30s set in africa movie so um dated it's very dated to say the least in some mm-hmm. aspects. Although very revolutionary for its time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is actually kind of an interesting thing about, about a, lot, a lot of these movies is that 
you watch them within the, uh, the the lens of the 1930s. Some of these movies are a lot better than others, but watching it from today's standpoint, it's it's kind of cringe-inducing for a lot of people who just aren't. Yeah, they can't appreciate what it was like back then. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but I would highly recommend Tarzan and His Mate. Uh, next movie we're going to get into is Manhattan Melodrama, which is or the movie that introduced the world to the duo that is William Powell and Myrna Loy, who would famously go on to star in the Thin Man movies. Oh, and Clark Gable's in it as well. So, yeah. You know what is you know what's weird is that after having watched the Thin Man movies, by the way, watch our video on After the Thin mm-hmm. Man, which you can find on YouTube.com. <laughs> <laughs> after having watched the Thin Man movies and just loving Myrna Loy and William Powell as a couple in those movies, I tend to forget that Manhattan Melodrama is also a Clark Gable vehicle. <laughs> it very much is so. I mean, he had a big year that year. I mean, he was not only in this, but he was also in It Happened One Night, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, we're talking about two Clark Gable movies in this in this podcast. I'll be honest, I had not even thought about that when I gave you these three movies. I was like, all right, all right, these are the three we're gonna we're gonna talk about this episode. And later on, I was like, oh, holy cow, I totally picked two Clark Gable movies. I didn't even intend that. <laughs> Say, who are these guys? What a dirty. It's just one man, Snow. He used to be Jim's assistant. He has a grudge against Jim, and he's waiting until just before election to spring everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember it now. I think I'll look him up. Have a little talk with him. Not now, Blackie. Blackie, don't do anything foolish. But uh, Manhattan Melodrama's quick synopsis, after surviving a sinking ship, two boys, Jim Wade and Blackie Gallagher, are orphaned and end up going their separate ways at the death of their guardian. Jim grows to have a prominent political career while Blackie becomes a casino owner and crime boss. Despite Blackie's lifestyle, the two men remain bonded through thick and thin, but when Jim runs for governor, his association with Blackie threatens his chances, and he must shake the ultimate, make the ultimate <laughs> sacrifice and shake the ultimate uh, shake, milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. So this was directed by W.S. Van Dyke, who famously directed several of the Thin Man movies including the first Thin Man, which also came out in 1934. The interesting thing about this movie is that I I had assigned it because when I, I first watched this probably about a year ago when I was working through a lot of these movies, and I loved it. I was blown away by how much I loved this movie. And rewatching it now, I'm not sure why. I still enjoyed the movie quite a bit, but it didn't have the same impact on me that it did my first time through. I, I think it's the first five minutes when you're kind of like looked at like, you know, these two characters and what happened to them and what brought them to where they're at. I remember actually kind of finding that very uh, emotionally overwhelming because for its time, this is like, man, you're seeing all these people die in this burning ship and them losing their parents is the way they did. That's a very emotional scene. I remember that. That was kind of touching. I've got to say, it was also kind of funny, though. Uh, unintentionally funny. Oh, yeah. These boys lose, you know, their parents early on. It's like, oh, no, we lost our parents. And the guy says, all right, I'll bring you in. And you're like, all right, this will be a great movie. Great movie. Their, their relationship with this with this guy raising them. Oh, no, no, wait, this 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 guy is dead, too, now, all of a sudden. Like, <laughs> like, like two minutes later, you go through the exact same thing over again. It felt very unnecessary. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could definitely, well, it lives up to its name, Manhattan Melodrama, for a reason. There's so much melodrama in this movie. I, I just completely just like forgot there was a guy who caught on fire on that ship and just jumped into the the river i was like oh yeah that's fun it goes from zero like 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 people having you know parties and dancing and playing jokes to full-blown carnage in two seconds flat it's like battleship potemkin level at this point exactly but watching the movie this time i think i think i just enjoy the movie it's 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 not particularly deep but i like the characters i think uh, clark gable was perfectly cast in this role i think the guy is interesting as this kind of a uh, rapscallion uh, crime lord casino owner you know doesn't give a damn what everybody else thinks but he has character. class and he has like charisma that is just you find him so endearing as well yeah but, but the character isn't one-dimensional also because clark gable could have played him off that way but you get that this guy actually cares. I think he wishes that he could be like William Powell. He wishes that he could be this fine, upstanding citizen. But he he just knows that that's just not him. That's not what he can do. So he thinks, well, I'm going to live this way, but I really want to live in a way that other people can live better. I want Jim to have a good life. And uh, when Myrna Loy, who is dating him at the beginning of the movie, leaves him for William Powell... At first, he's bitter about the whole thing, thinking, ah, you'll never make it. But then he's ultimately happy of that she made it in that lifestyle that he couldn't. And he just didn't think that she would be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so everything's in wanted- service of the greater good, even though 
he doesn't see it in himself. I can't do it, Blackie. I've got to commute you. Have you lost your mind? Now you've made your decision, now stick to it. Look, as far as I'm concerned, you're the best friend I ever had. But above everything else, you're the governor. I can't do this to you. But you've got to. Don't you see you're right? You get that? You're right. Hey, where do you get off commuting me? I'm not afraid to spill it. I not only got snow, but I killed Manny Arnold, too. I can't help it, Blackie. I'm not going to let you die. I can't do it. Hey, do you think you're doing me a favor by keeping me locked up in this filthy trap for the rest of my life? You're going to make a great sacrifice, ruin your career for what? So that I can rot in this hole. Would you do that to me? No, thanks. Don't commute me. I don't want it. Hey, look, Jim. If I can't live the way I want, then at least let me die when I want. I thought it was interesting that Clark Gable, uh, when when his life is in danger and he's and he's about to be caught, and William Powell kind of has his life in his hands, and oh no, oh no, what's oh no, what's what's going to happen? He never really seems to be worried, and I think it's because his character just just kind of figures, eh, my ticket is up. I, I figure this is where it would lead eventually, due to my lifestyle. I've done the best I can, but uh, if I'm caught and if I die, I'm caught and I die. And I hope that things work out better for William Powell for living his life that way. You know? Yeah, there's this level of acceptance of like this is the life I've chosen, and it's he's not compromising of like you know I I won't try to weasel my way out of this. This is kind of what I've done, and I lived it, and I just hope my friend lives a better life and treats my girl his girl now better than what I could have ever done. And I just think that's, that was, you're right. I think something that Clark, any other actor I felt like could have not have delivered that, but he brings that to the table. And I think it, that's why he's such an excellent casting choice. Actually, both of them are good casting choices. Everybody's great in this movie. Uh, uh, Myr- Myrna Loy is great too. I was confused initially when the movie started and Myrna Loy was paired with Clark Gable and I was looking at them and having seen her with William Powell in the Thin Man movies, I was mm-hmm. thinking like, what on earth is she doing with Clark Gable? This is such a weird pairing. But then I, realized, yeah. then I realized, like, oh, wait, the reason is because she's not supposed to be with Clark Gable. She's supposed to be with William Powell later. Well, yeah, and I'm pretty sure this is, like, definitely one of those starlet couples that Hollywood was banking at the time. And they kind of even were playing with audiences' expectations of, like, you know these two are going to be together because you've seen The Thin Man. And I just will have to admit, both of them just have a natural chemistry on camera. Like, it's, it's definitely something, Joe, I think you and Katie brought this up in your Thin Man review, that they just naturally have that chemistry with each other on screen they work beautifully together and even in this it just naturally works even though the writing i kind of was like finding like oh that's so cringy but they just made it work and i don't know i buy it i buy it all yeah i will say uh uh, clark gable so good in this movie that he made me actively enjoy and like a character who is pretty despicable he does a lot of terrible things in this movie and mm-hmm. he may do them for mm-hmm. quote-unquote good reasons but he's still like kind of a scumbag but you love the character because yeah. he's clark gable <laughs> yeah and it's kind of funny what this mo- everyone tends to remember this movie not so much for these actors or the whole story but there's another reason why people remember this movie john dillinger that's right the most expensive movie ticket of all time he paid for it with his life <laughs> So just to give some context to this, uh, this was the movie that John Dillinger came out of hiding after being, I guess, he did he escape from prison or was he released from prison? I forget. I, I, I'm not sure, actually, honestly. I, have, I haven't researched John Dillinger that much. All, all I know is his uh, his role in this movie. This, this movie. <laughs> uh, just go watch Public Enemies by Michael Mann starring Johnny Depp. It'll, it covers the same topic. But John Dillinger went and saw this movie at the Biograph Theater and was gunned down upon leaving the theater. And everyone remembers this movie because of that night when he went and saw it and it led to his demise. Yeah, he, he came out of hiding to see this movie and uh, you got to wonder why. It's also kind of funny how William Randolph Hearst actually publicized this shooting as a means of marketing the movie even more in his newspaper. Oh, yeah. Apparently, apparently Myrna, Myrna Loy was not happy about that, too. No, no. But this is Hearst as well. So yep. what do you expect? <laughs> Then finally, we'll move on to our, the last movie we're going to talk about, which is the most famous of these three movies. It Happened One Night, directed by acclaimed director Frank Capra, uh, starring Clark Gable once again and Claudette Colbert. Colbert? Colbert? Uh, anyway, synopsis. In Frank Capra's acclaimed romantic comedy, spoiled heiress Ellie Andrews impetuously marries the scheming King Wesley, leading her tycoon father to spirit her away on his yacht. 
After jumping ship, Ellie falls in with cynical newspaper reporter Peter Warren, who offers to help her reunite with her new husband in exchange for an exclusive story. But during their travels, the reporter finds himself falling for the feisty young heiress. This is kind of the ultimate screwball comedy in in a way. It is, yeah. And it definitely plays a lot with like what everyone, as we kind of were mentioning earlier, it deals a lot with just marital drama, even though the two are not married. Mm-hmm. They use that as a means of trying to get away from the cops and the people who are trying to hunt them down by pretending to be a couple. I, I was actually revisiting that scene, you know, when uh, the inspectors are coming in and they're investigating those little cottages. May I have to see your sweetheart? Who, me? You want to see me? What's your name? Are you addressing me? Yeah, what's your name? Hey, wait a minute. That's my wife you're talking to. What do you mean, coming here? What do you want, anyway? We're looking for somebody. Yeah, well, look your head off, but don't come busting in here. This isn't a public park. I got nurse to take a sock at you. Take it easy, son. Take it easy. And these men are detectives, Mr. Moore. I don't care if they're the whole police department. They can't come busting in here shooting questions of my wife. Now, don't get so excited, Peter. The man just asked you a simple question. Oh, is that so? Say, how many times have I told you to stop butting in when I'm having an argument? Well, you don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to lose your temper. That's what you said the other time, too. Every time I tried to protect you. The other night at the Elks dance, when that big Swede made a pass at you. He didn't make a pass at me. I told you a million times. Oh, no. I... And they're fighting as a couple. And it's hilarious to watch because they're really going at it. The interesting thing to me that, that, that stands out about this movie to me is the way that our perception of these characters changes. Mm-hmm. When the movie opens, we are on board with Ellie Andrews uh, and her father is trying to keep her from achieving her dream. She wants to marry whom she wants to marry. So she jumps ship and runs away. We're saying, yeah, you go get him. You go marry King Wesley, a character that we haven't met before. Mm-hmm. But we're on board with their relationship just because it's what she wants. Yeah. And she's being held back from that. And over the course of the movie, the movie gets you to root for her getting together with uh, this newspaper reporter, with Peter Warren. Even though you have no reason to dislike King Wesley. Exactly. <laughs> but you suddenly want these two other characters to get together, even though you should be rooting against them getting together because you would think that that's uh not what she originally wanted you know yeah and actually you kind of bring up a point like you i think that's what kind of creates a little bit of conflict in all this you as the audience because you're like i want them to be together uh wesley and ellie but then when peter comes into the picture you're like well geez i want them to be together and it became like i guess like the big formula for a lot of romantic comedies that we see nowadays in this one in particular we never meet wesley until like the very end and most of the time, we just have this perception of he might be the right guy for her. I mean, why else would she basically go against her father's wishes and run away like that? You know what it, what it reminds me of, uh, oddly enough, is uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, mm-hmm. where you have MJ is going to get married to this wonderful young astronaut guy who seems like a genuinely yeah. nice guy, and you have no reason to dislike him. At, at the end, she gets together with uh, Peter Parker, because of course she does. Uh, I gotta say though, Spider-Man Two, I still feel bad that she just left the astronaut at the altar. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like this, this wasn't a bad guy. Well, then again, that. we we never really kind of got that many scenes with him to really see him. And that's her. true. That's true. But everything that we've seen of him doesn't scream that he's a scumbag, <laughs> right? Well, you have no reason to hate this guy. It's just you like Peter more. Uh, this movie, uh, in light of the Hayes Code, is kind of interesting because it's very risque. It never crosses any lines, and I'm wondering how much of that is because they were limited, and how much of that is because they just wanted to be creative. Because I think I think a lot of times censorship does breed creativity in time, uh, and sometimes so like you know the walls of Jericho, the famous yeah. walls of Jericho theme. Yeah. So if anyone's not seen this movie, what uh, the wall of Jericho is is that Clark Gable and Claudia Colbert have to stay in the same cabin and. There's two beds, and he basically puts up this makeshift wall with a rug and a clothesline. He says, this is the walls of Jericho, and you and I will not cross it at all, and you are safe on the other side unless I decide to bring it down, which is like a little joke. It's it's implying, like, I'm not going out my way with you, which is a very creative device because at the very end, it's the big punchline for the very end shot. That, I suppose, makes everything quite all right. Well, this? Well, I like privacy when I retire. Yes, I'm very delicate in that respect. Prying eyes annoy me. Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet, but a lot safer. You see, uh, I have no trumpet. Now, just to show you my heart's in the right place, I'll give you my best pair of pajamas. Uh, do you mind joining the Israelites? 
You don't want to join the Israelites? All right. Uh, perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. You know, there's a funny thing about that. Quite a study in psychology. No two men do it alike. You know, I once knew a man who kept his hat on until he was completely undressed. Yeah, now he made a picture. Years later, his secret came out. He wore a toupee. You're, you're right. Like, I guess that was something that maybe the writers at the time were saying, well, we can't imply it, so we're just going to suggest it this way. And I think the famous hitchhiking scene as well, you brought this up. I actually did some research, Joe. Apparently, Claudia Colbert was a huge prima donna on the set. Like, she caused a lot of problems. Like, she was whining and complaining, and she didn't even want to do that scene. So Frank Capra was like, all right, fine, we'll get a model to come in and stand in your place, and we'll use her leg instead. And then she's like, no, no one's using her leg. I'm going to use my leg. And so it's like, all right, fine, have your wife. That's fascinating to me, actually, because she was in another movie from that year, a movie about Cleopatra, where I've got to say, I mean, the movie's really pretty risque, too, especially in the costume design. Oh, yeah. I think a big also issue is, uh, you know, both Clark Gable and Claudia had issues with the original script. They just did not like the way it was written. And even on set, uh, the screenwriter was on set constantly helping with Frank Capra, like rewrite lines that Clark Gable and Claudia Colbert wanted to say. So there was a lot of back and forth from what it was originally going to be to what it is everyone remembers as. Yeah, the movie's very funny, too. It's a very clever movie. Uh, I think the back and forth between Claudette and Clark Gable works fantastically. I think that's what most people remember. I think when most people think of screwball comedies, this is one of the go-tos for a reason. Almost borders on slapstick at times, but that's you know what, what you get with the screwball comedy. Yeah, and I think a lot of them, I can't tell if a lot of it came from Frank Capra or Clark Gable or Claudia Colbert, but you can see like there's a lot of uh, a lot of collaboration going on. So maybe that's kind of like one of the elements of what made the screwball comedy work so well is like when you have that much input from all those creatives at the same time. It can be very overwhelming and it can be very demanding. Like, you know, if one actor doesn't get their way, that director has to compromise and has to do something else. So this is a good example of also like how just creativity on set helps bring the best performances out of everybody. Yeah. And looking at my list of 1934 movies, it certainly isn't uh, my favorite of the year. It's, it's, in, my, it's in my top five. Uh, but it's, I, I absolutely get why it has this legacy, and I would highly recommend anybody check out It Happened One Night. Even if you're not necessarily a fan of, of older movies, I think you'll find a lot to enjoy in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it won an Oscar for a reason, so... Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, a lot of stuff was nominated that year also, but <laughs> that wasn't remembered. <laughs> By the way, uh, just a little tidbit. This is not this is not about uh, it happened one night, but 1934 in general. Did you know that there was a movie called Hollywood Party that came out in 1934? Yes. Mickey Mouse shows up in it. <laughs> it's a it's a live action movie, and Mickey Mouse interacts with the live action. Like he's like in a live action scene. He's like singing and dancing, and it leads into an animated sequence. But no, action. I mean like this is also kind of like similar to. I remember actually watching. A, I forget if what it was, but a couple of Disney cartoons and even like Looney Tunes from Warner Brothers doing the same thing at the time where they had all these, you know, famous actor cameos attending like this big party and just playing on their caricatures and their appearances and what people love them for. And I guess this was the big one that started it all in a way, right? This kind of cavalcade of stars being in one picture together. Yeah, Tarzan uh, as a character pops up in it. I think Laurel and Hardy, uh, yep. there's some, some comedy duo, duo pops up in there. No, it is Laurel and Hardy, yeah. Yeah, um, it's just a strange movie. <laughs> it is strange, and honestly, you can tell like this, there's nothing really going for it other than just you can see all your favorite actors and stars yeah, exactly. in one that's, place. That's all the movie is. Another quick note from 1934. My so my favorite movie of the year uh, so far, which doesn't seem to be toppled, is my my personal favorite is Tarzan and His Mate, just because pulp is where my uh, my heart lies. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, my number two favorite movie is Treasure Island, which is a fun adventure movie. Number three is It Happened One Night. And number four, The Barretts of Wimple Street, which has a phenomenal performance by Charles Lawton as the most hated character of all time for me. Well, what's new? What's new? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Barry's Wumble Street is almost worth watching just for how much you hate Charles Lawton in that movie. Uh, and then my number five is Of Human Bondage with Leslie Howard and Bette Davis, Betty Davis. 
Uh, number six, The Lost Patrol by John Ford. Viva Villa is my number seven, which is, I believe, co-directed by John... No, Howard Hawks, not John Ford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Howard Hawks. Number eight is a movie called Gold, a German movie. It's kind of a science fiction movie. And my number nine, The Thin Man. And number 10 is another kind of screwball comedy called 20th Century, starring John Barrymore and Carol Lombard. I'm just surprised that The Thin Man is not higher on your list. I was too, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I quite enjoy The Thin Man. Anybody who's seen our review of After the Thin Man knows how much infinitely I love After the Thin Man more than The Thin Man. But The Thin Man is still a good movie, decent movie. Uh, my least favorite movie, 1934, is a, man, is a movie called Man of Aaron. Uh, which was directed by Robert Flattery, who also directed Nanook of the North. Which, if anyone's kind of getting it, it's it's a documentary. Or a- Nanook of the North is, uh, I haven't actually seen it, but it poses itself as a documentary. From what I understand, they faked a whole bunch of stuff to make uh, Eskimos look more backwards uh, than they actually are for dramatic sake. And uh, this the movie one kind of does the same thing as well, right? Man of Aaron is so boring. Such a board. It does the same thing, just for some island out in the middle of nowheres. But like, like ninety percent of this movie is just watching waves crash on rocks, <laughs> like B roll. Isn't it still kind of like shot and edited in the same style as like Nanook of the North, where it's just like it's a shot and then title uh, card? Not, not, not so much that as as just kind of like instead of title card, it's just shot of waves crashing in rocks, <laughs> and um. It's, it's, it's like, I don't care about historical accuracy with this movie. If, if this movie was all fabricated from scratch, then it was a really boring fabrication. It's such a dull movie. Which is kind of, I find it kind of funny because it's like, you love stuff like, you know, a Terrence Malick film where we'll just have random shots of nature and trees. Yeah, but that's beautifully shot and a little bit of variation in Tree of Life. So you're saying that there is no variation or beautiful shots in this at all? No, it's it's so. It, 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 in my original review, I said um, it's monotonous, repetitive. Uh, we never get any insight into who these people are, their personalities. It's flat cinematography. It's just such a dull, dreadfully dull movie. So my least favorite movie, 1934, Man of Aaron. Absolutely. Well, well then that just means it's going to be my favorite movie of that year. You should check it out. I'm, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on it. I will next check it podcast, out. Next podcast, I expect to hear you talk about A full about review it. of this. I will give such a detailed review. I will describe the grass <laughs> and the clouds I see and the texture of the waves. Oh, and my God. I will I'm, I'm sell this, this movie. Episode. I will sell this movie to a T and make everyone listening to this podcast have to endure the next hour and a half of me describing how beautiful these waves are in Ireland. <laughs> I can't wait. I'll I'll be there. You be there, man. Anyway, that'll uh, end this episode of the Film Illiterates podcast. Uh, you can find us on youtube.com slash film illiterates. Uh, Nate, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Nathan underscore stone underscore films. Um, I tend to try to post stuff on there, mostly just beautiful stuff. Or you could actually go and check out my other Instagram handle, Star Lord Rules with a Z. I tend to call play a star lord and go to different conventions so you can check me out some of the posts there otherwise just come and chime in here on film illiterates i do these podcasts with joe and alex who sadly was not here tonight with us but he should be joining us next week well we'll snag him one of these days we will i will definitely do my best effort to make sure he comes to the next one and you can find me on uh, i run the film illiterates twitter go to twitter and search film illiterates uh, you'll find me on there i also run the facebook page but i'm not very active on there and of course you can find me on letterboxd if you want to see what i've been watching lately i log everything there and usually get a little mini review so letterboxd.com slash film underscore illiterate uh that'll do it for today and keep watching movies and keep it easy